The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Who is defining success for you? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So Mike Evans, who's going to join me today, founded delivery app Grubhub almost by accident, and then he built it into this massively successful company. But unlike other founders' stories we sometimes hear about, Mike wasn't solely motivated by getting more and more money. For him, what he wanted was to reach a certain point and then get out. But his investors had greater profit ambitions, and his company got away from him. So he sold it and had that huge payday that startup founders are told to want. And then he left to bike across the country on the Transamerica bike trail. His new memoir, Hangry, A Startup Journey, tells both stories of Mike as founder and as wanderer. So for me, Mike feels accessible, he feels honest, and he feels human. He's also unabashed in his description of his own flaws, his mistakes, which really make him feel more like a friend that we can all learn from. And his is a story of stumbling into a billion-dollar founder role, losing himself, making mistakes, and getting out so he could rediscover what he really wants. It's changed how he's choosing to make an impact in the world, and I'm just inspired by him. What I'm trying to do is change 10 people's minds about this idea that businesses cause massive social change, regardless of whether you want them to or not. And so be intentional about the change that your business is going to create. Mike's new venture is called Fixer, and it's both handyman service and well-paid training program for tradespeople. It's aiming to basically thread that needle between financial impact and social impact in a way that Grubhub never quite did, according to Mike. You'll hear more about Fixer later, but let's go back to hear about the founding of Grubhub. Here's Mike. So I wanted a pizza. That's <laughs> right. it. That's the whole story. No, there's more to it than it's that. There's a lot of uh, pizza in your book. <laughs> there is a lot of pizza and everything bagels and there's a, <laughs> chicken wings. I uh, I really like comfort food. I like really like comfort food. And I've leaned in on it. Uh, mm. And so, yeah, so I wanted a pizza at a time when you couldn't even discover the restaurants that delivered to your dress. You just had to flip through the yellow pages. They weren't even online yet at that point. And so uh, I created a delivery guide, which quickly became... Uh, an online ordering transactional platform quickly. You know, that's like the first four chapters of the book, but it took a lot of hard work and I had to learn a lot about a lot of different things, everything from, well, I knew software development, but I didn't know anything about sales. I didn't know anything about customer service, really. I didn't know anything about managing people. And so learning those things and surrounding myself with people who could teach me and then making mistakes along the way. So I ran that business for about 12 years through the IPO, after which I quit and rode a bicycle across the country. And so the book is just the, the sort of what it is like personally to go through that experience. Like, what what does it feel like? What does it look like from, from the inside? And the answer is it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like, mm. even though I was very successful, um, there, there, was, there was a big emotional journey that goes with that. So for a long time, I've worked in technology, you know, since I 
came into the working world. We hold people, founders, and, you know, what used to be a really precious um, ranking as a unicorn kind of on high. Uh, and we we look at it as a really romanticized life, particularly for those in the tech world. But also we romanticize the hustle. And what I loved about uh, your book was it wasn't like, a, here are the 10 steps to becoming, you know, a really successful leader of a, of a company, which is something you easily could have done. It's the, the personal experience inside of it. And I really like talking about, you know, what's actually going on versus what people perceive. So I would love for you to share a little bit of, you know, what was happening for you that would be meaningful for people to know who may be romanticizing this? Yeah, I think that there's a narrative that is, um, it's sort of like a cupcake, like it's all sugar and there's no substance <laughs> around this idea that like you go to business school and then you write a business plan and then you find an investor and then you you somehow magically transform that idea and that money into a multi-billion dollar business. Then you like buy an island or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And like, that's not the way it works. Like that's not how most businesses start. And in fact, writing a 10-step process would have been a lie because actually, you know, when you create a startup, what you're doing is you're saying, there's a thing that's broken in the world, and I think I can fix it in a way that nobody else has. And you're you're taking a step away from the conventional. And so trying to layer on a conventional set of rules for that is the exact wrong place to start. So instead, first of all, we all want to be successful, right? Pretty much everybody wants to be successful. But what like what does that mean? And so it starts with this idea of, Success is not becoming rich and going through an IPO. Success is a thing that one has to personally define. Now, I happened to do this thing that everybody defines as the ultimate success for a startup, but it was never my goal. My goal was at first I was trying to pay off student loans, and then I was trying to create a company that really helped independent restaurants. And I don't have a 10-step thing. I have a one-step thing, which is create a personal definition of success. And then maybe step two is, work really hard towards it. But then there's a third piece, which is if your effort's not taking you closer to that definition of success, then do something else, change your definition, like pick a different goal or change your effort, do something, but don't just, don't just like let inertia govern that in your path. How would you tell someone today to think about a personal definition of success? And I I ask this because, um, People listening to us today could say, like, of course, it's easy for him to say this post, you know, starting this company, post having the success that everyone's kind of looking for. I I heard a quote that was like, we all know money can't buy happiness, but we still want to find out on our own, you know? So I'm I'm (laughs) curious, like, you know, what would you say for people who are going, all right, how do I define this, particularly in a society like ours where this is kind of what reigns supreme? So... A personal definition of success has to be two things. It has to be explicit and it has to be unique. And by explicit, I mean, you actually have to say it out loud or type it or write it down somewhere. Like it's just not this vague thing that you kind of thought of one day. Like Mm -hmm. you write it down and you look at it, right? And then I say it has to be unique in the sense that you even just described this. A lot of people will try to spoon feed you a definition of success, whether that's wealth or the white picket fence or 2.4 kids or whatever, like Almost every person that you meet has an idea for you about what success is. There's some gravity around the idea of wealth being one of those things. And it can be hard to break away from that. And so when I say unique, I don't just mean you have it, nobody else does. I mean, if you say it to someone, they'll disagree with you. They'll be like, no, that's that's a terrible idea for a definition of success. Like, you know, you're onto something if people don't get it. And so looking for like, 
peer confirmation of your definition of success is a bad idea, actually. Like it should be a pointy opinion that not everyone holds. And so, um, and so I didn't, my goal wasn't to like become wealthy and buy an island and go on private jets and stuff like that. My goal was at first I had 260 grand in student debt and I was trying to pay that off. But nowadays, like, why am I still working? It's not for wealth acquisition for sure. Right. It's mm-hmm. about trying to create change in society in the way that I, I want it to using a huge lever, which is a, a big business. As I was thinking about uh, David Brooks' concept of the second mountain and the first and second mountain and how um, so many of us, when we start out, you know, in careers, you know, if we're fortunate enough to have had the kinds of education or the connections or the privilege to show up in places where, you know, our big dreams feel supported, whatever those are, that, you know, we do spend so much of our early lives trying to climb that first mountain of what you just said, the spoon-fed kind of wealth, success, picket fence, marriage, kids. I mean, all the things that we're told uh, are supposed to make a full life. The idea is that then the second mountain is when we realize that actually our job here and our goal here is to contribute to good in society and good in the world. You are someone who is doing that today. And, you know, I'm curious what you would say to people who are who are younger than me and younger than you who are out here thinking about what they want to do with their lives. Um, how do they get to that first? Or do you feel like the generation that's coming up right now is already there? I certainly think that, you know, if you look at the anti-work movement, if you go on the subreddit anti-work and like, <laughs> like you see, you start like you surfing. see this. And it's, yeah. it's great. I yeah. love it. I love this idea of being bold and courageous and being an intentional about where you want your life to go. And so I think that certainly it's in the dialogue, but I bet, I bet there's also a piece of this that's like, okay, well, that's hard. That's hard. It's hard to do. It can be really challenging to buck a trend and to go out on your own or quit a job that isn't fulfilling your needs. It can be really hard. And so that there's sort of a few thoughts here that I have, like one of which is that when I talk about a personal definition of success, one of the things I say is it's important to quit whatever you're doing if it's not lined up with that, which is different from saying give up without putting the effort in, right? Like achieving one's goals is very difficult. It takes years. It has consequences. It has big rewards as well. Um, but it's easier when you when you know where you're headed. And, you know, if I could go back and whisper in my ear when I was 20 I guess 26 when I when I quit my job to start Grubhub. If I could go back and whisper in my ear, I would say, think bigger. Like paying off your school loans is not big enough. Mm. And if I had that framework about like, there's gonna be another mountain after you climb this one. So like just start with a bigger mountain. Now, mm. there's a flip side of this, which is as it may be actually impossible to ever hit your goals because as you start to attain them, it changes you, mm-hmm. right? All that hard work and starting to see things things play out, it it changes us. And so what happens is you start to approach the goals is you move the goalposts. Like most people actually make things harder on themselves because they want to attain more as they start to approach attaining the first thing that they hit. And so maybe this is just what I'm saying is that like I sort of did have a first level success and I was like, ah, I wish I had pushed hard. But like really 26-year-old Mike is like, Dude, I I just want a pizza. <laughs> I just want to like <laughs> like take it down a notch for a moment. Like you haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I mean, talk to me about 
as we're in this process of kind of becoming and watching our lives unfold and not knowing where it's going and being on our way to our goals, what advice would you give about enjoying some of the simplicity of what happens in our lives? Yeah, I think that um, it's dangerous to say, I'm going to be content when I get to the top of this first mountain and to not enjoy the journey on the way up. This idea that I will be content in the future if I do X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. is always false. Contentment can only happen in the present and it's a muscle that needs to be exercised. And so um, I don't know that I just have two mountains. I think there might be a whole range. Like, (laughs) uh, you know, there's certainly the work environment, but that's one part of a larger holistic sort of thing I'm trying to do with my life. One of which is just enjoying spending time with my daughter while she's young. And in others, the other relationships that I value. And um, even that bike trip that I took, like that was a great experience in and of itself. Like, yes, I learned some things and I share some of those things in the book, but actually there were moments of just being present mm-hmm. that were wonderful as I, as I biked across the country. We're going on a quick break. This takeaway should be pretty easy. Think about your personal definition of success. Write it down, say it out loud, and make it unique enough that your peers, your friends, your family might not totally agree. When we get back, more about Mike's transcontinental bike ride and what he's learned. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Mike Evans, founder of Grubhub and author of the new memoir, Hangry. So Mike built the successful company, he sold it, and then he quit. After that, he decided to do something else that was really difficult. He biked across the country. And I wanted to know, why was this his next step? Here's Mike. So I had this goal. And there was a couple goals involved in the bike trip, one of which was to literally just physically move from one side of the country to another on a bike. But there was a bigger goal, which was I wanted to be present, decompress after all that work, really get rid of some of the anger that I had developed from just being stressed all the time. And um, 
I didn't try to get all of those things on day one, right? I didn't try to get across the country on the first day, nor <laughs> did I try to change who I was all in one day, right? It, it started with fairly short 40 mile, 50 mile days. It was challenging for me to start. And then I grew into, by the time I was in Kansas, doing 100 mile days. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped doing that and just slowed down and enjoyed the Rockies because even though I could go further, I was like, I don't want this trip to end. And so I, I think there's a piece of this that's like, you can have ambitious goals if A, you give yourself permission to change them if they're not working for you. That allows you to be more ambitious and more experimental in the things that you do. And the other is giving yourself a lot of grace around, it's not just like always up. It's a bit of a random drunken walk. Like <laughs> you're, like some days are down, some days are really far up. Like it's sort of all over the place. And that's okay. Like that's totally fine. If it's an ambitious goal, you couldn't do it in one day or even one year. And so I think leaning into that is helpful. You know, I, um, I'm i thinking about, you know, ambition in general, but also defining longer-term goals. Um, and I think for a lot of the listeners who listen to this show, there are people who want to have really meaningful lives. That's what this show is about. Um, and that entails our work and many other parts of our life, right, because we've got so many. I think it's hard sometimes for people to define what it is they really want, like what their vision really is, even if you don't get there, right? The idea is is always that you're going to be reaching for more. And that's what makes being alive interesting is you don't just go, oh, I'm over it. I'm fine. You go, ooh, there's something else I want. When it comes to big vision and not just kind of the, the immediate goals that can get us lost in the weeds, how do you think about defining that? So... um I can give an example from a company and maybe we can extrapolate that into sort mm-hmm. of life more generally. And that's that, um, you know, at a, at a company, we have we, a fixer, we have a mission statement. We fix things, we build people, mm-hmm. right? But then the company has goals. And then I personally have goals that ladder up to that goal that then ladder up to the mission. And so being aware of like how my daily activity ladders up to a longer time frame, which then ladders up to a bigger idea and how they're connected and how on a day-to-day basis I'm moving that ball forward. That's really powerful for me. And Mm so, you know, like, I guess if I were to extrapolate that to my life, I'm going to do this ad hoc right now. Like, what's my goal for my life? Like, what's like, what do I want? I'm, I'm 80 and like, did I succeed? And it really comes down to like, did I leave the world a better place for individuals that I came in contact with or that I influenced. Mm-hmm. And did I have fun along the way? Like, that's it. That's the whole thing I'm trying to do here. And so right now I'm doing that at Fixer. I'll have other goals that come along as I go through life phases. There's a lot in that mix, but I think they all ladder up to the same thing. I'm not always great at mm-hmm. hitting them. I'm not always great at moving the ball forward. During the pandemic, I was just treading water. I used to just mix my metaphors there, but like, it's not always easy to actually make progress. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things, external things that prevent us, right? And that make it very challenging. Um, but anyway, I guess the short answer is just make sure that the daily activity, and the, the short-term activity ladders up to a longer-term vision. I had this vision of ladders as you're explaining this, and I love that. It's sort of like each thing is leading to another thing is leading to another thing, which is leading to the big thing. And if we can kind of put all of those together but also piece them apart, we can get better at moving towards the big thing but still being aware of the ladder we're on. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a paradox, right? Because 
I'm talking about a very future oriented, how am I doing today? How does it matter for tomorrow? Which is, which is a paradox because it's also critically important to just be in today, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do both those things? If I figure it out, I'll let you know. Call me. I I don't know. (laughs) I actually don't know the answer to that question. Uh, well, what you know, what I love about you in the in the book um, is, you know, you take this approach that feels it's humorous, it's colloquial. I kind of feel like I'm reading a story from a friend um, who also is very aware of his flaws and where you know he he does things well and where he doesn't do things well. What was the choice behind writing in this style? Again, knowing that you could have come from any direction and probably you know found that people wanted to read the book. Yeah, I, I mean, I want the book to have some pointy opinions to to make a point that maybe not everybody agrees with, or hopefully we'll just see fresh. They're not original ideas. I'm mm-hmm. not the first person to talk about intentionality, mm-hmm. right? But I'm presenting it in hopefully an original way that's relevant. But the other piece is it's supposed to be fun to read. It's also, I think, helpful to see examples of success that aren't sugarcoated because that's not how the journey goes. Uh, it's hard. It's like I said, it's a bit of a random drunken walk. It's not really in a straight line. And so I think it's important for people to see that because then it it has the potential to give a person, uh, let them give themselves permission to approach this with some challenges, some difficulty, give themselves grace around. Sometimes it ta- you have setbacks and you just work through them. Um, and I think that that's important uh, because it, not everything, even though I had the IPO, like there's a lot of moments in the book where it's just not a slam dunk, mm-hmm. right? Oh, in this this idea of pulling back the romanticization of this experience, what was one of the hardest truths that you had to write in the book? Or maybe even what what made you nervous or makes you nervous about what people might read? Um, I'm very self-deprecating in the book, and I, I poke fun of myself on a lot of occasions. Mm-hmm. But I also, the other people in the book who, th- these are real people. And sometimes I show people in a mixed light, right? Like, one of one of my dear friends and one of the people who was really invested a lot in me personally, not just money, was Bruce Barron, who is at Origin Ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a critical part of the success of the business. Um, but I, I, I also share some moments that are not ideal in terms of like the, how the investment came about uh, and like the terms that we, we invested in. And so sharing that like that people can be really good people, but you can have difficult moments. Um, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about what that will do to my relationships. So mm-hmm. that's the thing that I've been worried about. Um, I still don't know how that's going to play out. I took some risks and hopefully the people who read it can understand the, the point I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. You know, I what I think you're you're calling to light that's really important, but I think also really hard for us as human beings and especially in our society, the way that things are typically framed in the media, in the news and the way that we approach situations um, is like our inability to deal with complexity. (laughs) So, you know, you're either good or bad. You're either in or out. This person was either right or they were wrong. You either have integrity or you don't. Like these kinds of things make life so, make people seem so dualistic when we actually all know that deep down we are incredibly complex. Yeah. This is something I talk a lot about with people on this show because I'm so deeply passionate about us getting better at holding the complexity of ourselves and of each other so that we can have some level of of compassion for ourselves, but also for each other so that we can live in a world where we're more aware of this. Like, how do you how do you approach this? Yeah, I think a great example of what you're talking about is wealth, 
right? So as a country, we love startup entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. until we hate them, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And there's no in between. Uh, Zuckerberg was great until he was a demon in in a lot of people's minds, right? And and that's true for most successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so one of the risks I take in the book is I talk a a little bit about my humble beginnings, right? Single mom, four kids growing up in, in Georgia to struggling through this whole thing to then becoming, and I even put the dollar amount in the book, becoming very wealthy, right? Like that whole transition. And we love to other people for lots of reasons, but one of the really safe ways to do it is to other the wealthy, or if you're wealthy, to other the poor, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe all of those people are actually just people, right? Um, and so I tried to explore that idea from that perspective, and it was a very intentional choice. And I'm not like I'm the hero of the book in the sense that I'm the protagonist in the book that I wrote about myself. Of course, it's going to come off with me looking pretty good. But like, I'm sure there are people in that journey who who don't remember me as fondly as I remember myself mm-hmm. in that journey. And there's complexity there, right? They're not wrong. Those folks who have different opinions about me, they're not wrong. They had a different experience of me than I had of myself, right? And so um, I think exploring that complexity is is valuable for a, a well-rounded, thoughtful, fulfilling life. Um, but it sure is hard. It yeah. sure is hard. Like it's a lot easier to just put people in the like A or B category. Yeah. It's almost like the admittance that others are complex means that we have to then admit that we are complex, which means we have to look at all of us, which then means, oh God, I have to look at the parts of me that I like and the parts that I don't like. And it sort of asks us to be more compassionate to ourselves. And I always think, you know, you can't give what you don't have. So if you don't have self-compassion, wherever you are, um, you know, I know you use like wealth on the spectrum, but in any any experience, how can you truly and deeply give it to someone else? What have you learned about self-compassion and empathy? Yeah, I um, I was frustrated with the trajectory of where Grubhub and all the food delivery companies were going mm-hmm. at, as as I left in 2014 and in the in the few years that were subsequent to that. And the gig economy like is is great for some people at some times, but generally not great for a lot of people a lot of the time. It can be a real trap in terms of locking it locking a person out of economic mobility. And I recognize that I played a part in creating that. Um, and so, rather than be consumed by guilt for that. Um, I've decided to work on a very specific entry path into the trades, W2 full-time employee business, right? Like I'm trying to be the change that I want to see in the world, mm-hmm. but it requires a certain amount of grace for mistakes that I made in the past and to, to myself. And I'm not sure everybody else is going to give me that grace, but I have to give it to myself mm-hmm. so that I can actually still do good work now. Um, and that's, it'll be a controversial issue, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure everyone would agree with me that I deserve that grace for myself, but I can't just be um, totally like locked in sort of this sense of like, uh, of of guilt for whatever contribution I had towards that. Yeah. You know, what you've just talked about is, and what you're talking about in the book is the fact that you have had a very unconventional experience, right? And so, how could you have been prepared for all of the things that were to come? There is no one who could tell you exactly what this journey would look and feel like. Um, And yet, you know, I think sometimes as society at large, we like to have a protagonist and an antagonist, right? And we like to have this this dualistic idea. But in reality, none of us know what we would do were we you. Yeah, I um, I think one of the things that I hit upon 
that helped with this was really focusing on the question of what now instead of why mm -hmm. me. It's really easy to, when things go good, to give ourselves credit that we were the architects of our own success. When things go bad, it's somehow externally caused. I don't know the answer to that question. What mm -hmm. I do know is it's an irrelevant question. It's not helpful to dwell on it. It's much more helpful to say, what now? Like, what am I going to do with, with either my setback or my success? And like, how do I then take that and, and really be beneficial to the people around me in my community and my relationships? I mean, it didn't come all in like just this flash of insight, but there was a lot of things that sort of led me to continue to believe that. Um, and that, that helped for sure. Yeah. Um, but what you said is also true of everyone's life. No, no one gets the game plan before they actually live it. Yeah. Right. So, um, and so in some sense, my experience was not unique. We are all going through that journey. Yeah. And I think we all deserve some level of grace. Um, so I'll ask you this then, Mike, what now in, you know, just not in your professional ventures, but in your life and how you hope to approach um, the next part of your second mountain? Yeah. So what now for me is, is trying to create this company that's both generating a profit and increasing the benefit in the communities that we serve. Specifically, we're trying to increase the diversity and skill of tradespeople in the communities we serve. And we're doing it in a way that generates a lot of profit. And that's, that's like work, but it's not, it's not unrelated to creating a better world for my daughter to grow up into. Right. And having, and then also I'm a lot more, a lot more focused on being intentional about enjoying it as I go along with the people that I'm doing it with. And so that's, that's the what now for me. Love that. And I, I, I gotta say, I really believe that all of us no matter what our beliefs are, have the value of most of us at the core have the value of creating a better world for the people who are coming into it and coming up in it today than the one that we've had. I think we have different beliefs about what that means. Um, but I really appreciate that that's something that you're doing and you're you're tackling your own corner of the world in doing this because um, you're in a position where you could easily decide not to. And you could take Thanks. a totally different approach. I really appreciate you know, that. You're, Thank you. You're, yeah, you're choosing. You're choosing <laughs> this, and and like you said, it's like you know, um, you could choose something very different, and we see that, and that's that's okay. But what you're choosing is to continue to create uh, good in the world and to create impact in a way that makes it so that when you are 80 and you're in your rocking chair, wherever that's going to be, if you have a rocking chair, I don't even know who has those anymore, but they're somewhere, um, <laughs> that you're going to be thinking, yes, I did everything I could and I had fun. So I, I just, I really appreciate that you're doing that. Um, Mike, I'm going to have you complete these three statements. Better humans are. Intentional. Better work is. Intentional. <laughs> Fair. You're not I think wrong. it's the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And a better world has. Intentional people. <laughs> okay. Let me throw it. All right. A better world has more opportunity for more people. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me. Loved getting to talk to you today. That was Mike Evans, founder of Grubhub, transcontinental cyclist extraordinaire, and author of the new memoir, Hangry. One big thing before we go it takes some chutzpah to choose to define your personal version of success. And it can feel tough to kind of grab onto. It's a slippery idea. But I honestly think this would help more of us understand what and how simple contentment can be on an everyday basis. I want to give you an example. A couple of years back, I started using something called the five-minute journal. And I loved it because it only took me, surprise, five minutes to do every morning. And the journal guides you to consider three key things. What you're grateful for, 
what would make the day great, and an affirmation about you, something you want to believe about yourself. The middle one made all the difference. It was what would make today great. I started off writing that what would make the day great were accomplishments, tasks, things I had to get done. But by the end of the first year, and almost daily now, it's things like laughter, calm, kindness to someone who doesn't expect it, or staying open. In a way, it's a mini personal version of success. I know if those three things have happened, I'm in good shape. If you're contemplating what success looks like for you, first of all, please do it with a cheesy slice and share this episode with someone who likes pizza and success. I know that you know someone who likes both of those things. To help other people like you find this show, leave us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one sentence review telling me what one of your big, hairy, audacious goals is after hearing Mike Evans. I am cheering you on. As always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and meaningful living, and find my newsletter on how to live even better than you do today at www.linkedin.com ITA. That's www.linkedin.com ITA. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asakya Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.